0: Do you feel as if reality has been altered? That something or someone has interfered with our collective present moment? Then this is the podcast for you. This is the sound of duality. This has the sound of a DMT molecule as it travels through your body, opening you to the knowledge that you seek. It's also the sound of sheep and bliss wandering this universe and the concept of sonder as you play a lead role created by these two states of being pull up a pew and take a seat this is a podcast of all you touch and all you see the guests are everything in between enjoy the ride enjoy the duality of each state of being and the very thin line between each.
1: In an era defined by hyperpolarization, those with differing beliefs have never seen further and further apart. There is a constant war raging between two seemingly opposing sides for who or what gets to define the narrative. Enter Tome Time. Cut through the noise of thousands of frantic and fractured voices. Rediscover the love for books and the prolonged, thoughtful state that they create. Discover nuance, define complexities, achieve thoughtful compromise, create the new narrative. Welcome to Tome Time. I'm your host, Nick Aris. Welcome to the next episode of the Tome Time Podcast. Joining us is a best selling author, an incredibly talented public speaker, and someone who specializes in something that's close to my heart, which is the study of altered states of consciousness. With us is Anthony Peake. Anthony grew up near Liverpool, England. He has several degrees, he's written many books, and he is actually a member of several very renowned institutions, including the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which has always intrigued me. His latest book is called The Hidden Universe, an investigation into non-human intelligences. Anthony really offers us a scientific approach for understanding the hidden layers of reality behind many unexplained psychic and other phenomena, including our knowledge, visions, and visitations from the so-called others. They've been called many things throughout history, from angels to spirits, from the watchers, from the archon to the djinn, from aliens to ghosts. Humanity has long sought for a better understanding of the nebulous intelligences beyond our normal human experience. What are these others? Where are they located? How can we contact them? What is really going on here? It's an honor to speak with you, and thanks for making this interview happen. Anthony Peake.
2: Wonderful to speak to you as well, Nick. Um, very interested in this. how this conversation is going to bear out. Uh, it's going to be very, very interesting, I think.
1: Yes. So, parapsychology is something that has always greatly intrigued me. And noetic science in particular, ever since I read the novel actually by Dan Brown, don't know if you've ever uh, encountered it, but The Lost Symbol mm. really explores these themes. And for people who don't know, noetic sciences attempt to establish an evidence-based scientific method for exploring what otherwise might be thought of as psychic or spooky, you know, paranormal phenomena. Can you establish some of the standards for evidence and and reasoning that you bring to these kind of controversial investigations?
2: Absolutely. Um, Just as a point of definition, Um, I always have defined myself as being a sceptic. I'm very much from the sceptical wing of um, research. And indeed, Mm -hmm. you know, I was a regular reader of the Sceptical Inquirer and various other magazines. And my bookcases are full of people who would be argued to be sceptics, people like Gardner and various other people. But for me, I go back to the statement made by Mar- Marcello Truy many, many years ago. It, it, it is regularly misquoted as being said by Carl Sagan, which it isn't. It's actually called the Sargon proof, I think. But in fact, it was a guy called Marcello Truy who said, extraordinary claims need extraordinary proofs. So for example, if I turn around and I say to you, I saw a green car driving down the road, nobody would expect me to bring forth evidence for that, because you know we can prove that green cars exist, and in, in we, how we define exist is another matter. But nevertheless, you know we would agree in consensual reality green cars exist, and we share them within our consensual reality. But if I turn around and I said I saw a pink elephant floating down the middle of the street, <laughs> or I encountered entities or greys or whatever, my mm-hmm. level of proof and the demands that science would make of me to prove those extremes would be fairly strong because this is the way it should be. You know, extraordinary claims need extraordinary proofs. Right. That famous
1: line from the cosmos. Yeah.
2: I know, exactly. And in terms of paranormal phenomena, you know, the very word paranormal, you know, above normal, these are things that do not fit in within the present scientific paradigm, but could be proof of something far deeper. But in order to convince the skeptics You have to engage the skeptics using their own tools. Now, for example, you know, the scientific method is basically things need to be repeatable. You know, if you make Mm -hmm. a claim that you can get out of your body at will and you can move to another room and you can witness things in that room, all well and good. So all you need to do is to be tested. Somebody leaves a six digit number in that room, you go into that room, you read it, and then you come back. And these are the kind of claims that have to be rationalized and dealt with. And this is what I do. I very much deal with the science. And my starting point is always the science. And I move from the science to the evidential, to the phenomenological in terms of people's experiences.
1: Interesting. That really appeals to me. I actually have a philosophy of science background. So, I mean, I understand everything from Karl Popper's falsificationism, the idea that it's uh, it's not truly a hard science until your claim can actually be falsified or validated by some sort of experimentation you know really getting back to the scientific method so that intrigues me because I, uh, I i have had some experiences in the realm of you know paranormal experiences but it it always um really solidifies it for me when i can see that someone is taking the scientific method seriously
2: well i think it so, comes down to doesn't it it comes down to the application of occam's razor and it does you know in the final analysis if yeah. if you can come up with the simplest explanation is usually the correct one you know if you see a, a levitating table the simpler explanation is that the medium is cheating as palladino did you know mm-hmm. and we know from history that these people notoriously cheated we also know that the area of parapsychology lends itself to cheating and people can do things for pecuniary advantage they can gain money And they can do various things by claiming things they cannot do. And we have to separate the wheat from the chaff here. There are extraordinary experiences, as you intimated there. We've all had them. We've all had precognitive. Many of us have had precognitive experiences. The question is, we need to to explain them within... Our present understanding of science, and this is what I've tried to do in my 11 books, is to say, right, okay, what's the scientific explanation for this? Can we have a scientific explanation for life after death? Can we have a scientific explanation for déjà vu, recognition, these things? And I believe I can present them.
1: Absolutely. There was a powerful quote you shared from William Blake's poem, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, that said, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is. Infinite, for man has closed himself up till he sees all things through narrow chinks of his cavern. A central theme of your new book is to use the lens of altered states of consciousness to see through the veil of perception into more layers or dimensions of reality. Scientists use entheogens, or more commonly psychedelics, to study how people are encountering and or communicating with various non human intelligences and thus try to investigate these phenomena with all the rigors of the scientific method to better understand these other levels of reality, as well as the entities, as you call them, these things from somewhere else. In the intro to your new book, you describe a hypnagogic light experience you had with a team of researchers on the shores of Lake Geneva. You write, What I experienced that weekend totally changed my understanding of what reality truly is. Through the effects of the hypnagogic light experience, I was introduced to a perceptual world beyond my everyday experience, a world that seems to be all around us, even though in ordinary states of consciousness, we simply do not perceive it. Can you describe for our listeners what exactly this hypnagogic light experience entailed? And what do you mean by a perceptual world beyond our ordinary experience?
2: The hypnagogic light experience is a machine that was invented or designed from the bottom up by a consultant neurologist called Engel, uh, called uh, Dirk Procol and a consultant psychologist called uh, um, Engelbert Winkler. Engelbert Winkler Came across my work many years ago. He had a near death experience when he was a child and had been searching for an explanation for the experience he had, which actually led him then to become a psychologist and become a consultant psychologist. Now he has, uh, we had a mutual friend called Evelyn Alassa Vellerano, who works at the University of Geneva and is also a researcher into near death experiences. She's written books with people like Kenneth Ring. And she's a member, as as I used to be, of the International Association of Near-Death Studies. Mm. And she'd mentioned that I was planning to visit her in Geneva. And immediately Engelbert said, I need to meet this guy. And I need to show this guy this new machine that they'd built. Now, it originally started because Engelbert, when he was working with traumatized children, realized that he could put children into light hypnotic states when they were under natural light. Now, in Switzerland with the mountains, sometimes, you know, the light isn't always natural or it's bouncing off things. So he wanted to create as best he could, as close he could to natural light. So that's when he approached his good friend, Dirk Procol, to say, Dirk, can we, Can I work with you neurologically and your understanding of how the brain works, how the the, uh, the neurons in the brain work and how they interface with each other? in such a way that we could build a machine that could could facilitate light hypnotic states. They then realized that they had something more here, and they started to work with stroboscopic light as well as intensities of light. And they found that when they did this, people would see things differently. It would seem to change the way the brain structured itself. Mm. And this machine is very much based similarly. There was a guy called Geisen, who in the ni- uh, the 1960s worked with people like Burroughs, the American writer, and they worked on something that they 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 had a light device, um, but it was nowhere near as clever as this. This is completely different to anything that's on the market. So anyway, they invite me over and they bring it over. They drove they drive over from Austria. They live, work in the, they live in the Tyrol in Austria, a place called Kuf, Kufstein, and they drive over to Geneva, to Evelyn's house, and they wheel this machine in. Now. Again, if anybody's interested here, if you you look if you search for me and Lucid Light Device or the Hutnegogic Light Device on YouTube, you will actually see the incident I'm about to describe because somebody filmed it when it was was happening. So hmm. they wheel the thing in, and I don't know. Probably you're not old enough to remember, but in the 1950s there was a movie called the original version of War of the Worlds with Gene Barry, yeah. and the <laughs> UFOs in that looked just like this machine. It was really- I've seen it. You have. Yeah. So you know where the UFOs are, and you see the UFOs <laughs> the thing that comes out the middle of them with the eye. It looks like that. So they wheel this thing in, and I'm thinking, oh my mm-hmm. God, this is going to be quite freaky. <laughs> so I then sit down in front of it, and they switch it on. You close your eyes, and all you see is flickering white light. Now, I started to feel slightly embarrassed here because they were so excited. They gave me this, one of the strongest effects they could give on the hypnagogic light device, but I sat there for about five minutes and nothing happened. And I'm thinking to myself, hmm, what am I going to say to them? How am I going <laughs> to pretend something happened? Right, right. And then suddenly something did. And it was extraordinary. Because what initially happened was it was as if there was somebody had thrown blue paint into the right side of my visual field. And then somebody else had thrown. Red paint into the other side, and then they started merging together, and they the the colors started to spin like um, Mm. a vortex, and then it was like I was being drawn into this channel of colors, rather like again the sequence again. Obviously, you know your movies, the the ending sequence of two thousand and one, a space odyssey, where they go through the Stargate. It was like that. It was like a near death experience. I was pulled down this 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 place. So Mm. I turned around to them and I said, so you've changed the colours, have you? And they said, no, 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 you can open your eyes ever so slightly now to see. And I opened my eyes and to my utter astonishment, the light was still white. So these colours were being created by my brain. They were not being created by the light at all, nor were the vortices and everything else I was seeing. Okay. So then I closed my eyes again and then it started to get totally strange because... I could see in my extreme right periphery vision, the only thing I can describe, the nearest thing is a scotoma. Now I suffer from classic migraine and a scotoma for anybody who's a classical migrainer will know that it's when your visual field starts to break down. You get these kind of jagged patterns in your visual field. And it's a breakdown. Okay. So it's a breakdown in your visual field, but it was in my extreme visual field. So I said, can I look away from the light? Because there's something extraordinary happening down there and they said yes you can look away because your brain has now encoded the light so i looked down and i still to this day cannot believe what i saw i was looking down at the surface of a planet i was probably i don't know 30 40 miles above the surface maybe more i could see the curvature of the planet but what was weird was the planet was covered in a checkerboard pattern and the edge of the checkerboard pattern were flashing blue lights right into the edge of the planet and the curvature of the planet. And I felt like I was floating. Now, being the heroic person I am, I turn around and said, switch it off, please. And it, it was gone. It'd gone straight away. As soon as they switched it off, it had disappeared. Okay. Now wow. I found this extraordinary because suddenly I had seen something I did not I could not even begin to quantify what I was seeing. But I've subsequently researched this. And what I was seeing was what Carlos Castaneda called the lights of the world. These blue lights are a symbol that people have. Now, on top of that, I a friend of mine, I was explaining, a guy called um, Robert Bruce, who lives in Australia, who's an out-of-body researcher. And when I described it to him, he told me, he said, look at the back page of my my own book, his book. And he said, is that what you saw? And I said, yes, it was. And he said, that's the astral plane. It's what you'd seen and not the astral plane. The, 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 the checkable pattern was the astral plane. And I, I thought, right, okay. So then going back to the story then, we then start discussing various things not to do with the light experience. And as we're talking, I start to feel the strangest sensation and it was a vibrationary sensation in the center of my forehead. And this started to continue and it was as if something was going in the center of my head. That, it continued all through the evening. And that night I had the most extraordinary dreams. I dreamt of snakes. I was seeing snakes. Snakes were looking down at me and everything else. Now I've subsequently researched this whole effect. And I believe what the hypnagogic light device does is it stimulates the pineal gland to excrete or more arguably synthesize from melatonin an endogenous substance, which an associate researcher of mine has called metatonin. It's endogenous dimethyltryptamine. It makes the, mm. c- the pineal gland synthesize uh, dimethyltryptamine, which is one of the most powerful hallucinogenic substances known to man. Right. And what other people would argue was opening my third eye. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a more sort of- traditional way of
1: describing it, right?
2: It is, but effectively, I think it's more than that, because I've now written extensively about dimethyltryptamine and dimethyltryptamine experiences. And indeed, Mm -hmm. I work with researchers in the field who are doing controlled research on dimethyltryptamine at the moment at the Imperial College in London, and also some associates I know working down at Sussex University as well. So, Yeah, we're
1: going to get to that. Um, Just really quickly, I want to touch on the idea that so you've, something's been triggered in the neurology. Yes. But then you start to, so you're, you're having an experience of seeing something that wasn't there before, but now you are. And so it, it has to do with this idea of, of the hidden layers of reality that your book is kind of unpacking. And in previous interviews, I'd heard you say that Einstein actually believed in sort of hidden variables behind physical reality. In effect, that the, reality has different levels of reality encoded into this sort of 4d 3d space and time dimension that we're in and you discussed the fact that there's been really even in established fields uh, an accepted failure of the materialist reduction model of reality it doesn't quite capture the complexity of all these different multiple layers beyond our five senses and uh You know, minds like Albert Einstein and John Archibald Wheeler, who's highly underrated, he coined the term black holes, was highly influential in the Manhattan Project. Uh, Einstein and Wheeler agree that uh, the new models of reality show that this is a participatory universe, that there's some way that our consciousness is actually bringing things into existence essentially by having an experience. And I'm wondering, can you comment on that process? Particularly.
2: Oh, absolutely. This is exactly where my work is going at the moment. And I'm starting to pull together material for next book, my next book. And mm. this is the area I'm going to be exploring in greater detail. I think what we have to realise is that the materialist reductionist model is very, very effective. It, It is the reason that we were able to communicate now. And it's a very simple process. It is literally, you take an object and you reduce it down into its component parts to understand how it works. Like a motorcycle, you take a motorcycle apart so you understand how the internal combustion engine works. You can similarly take apart matter in such a way that you can break it down to its basic components of its molecules and its atoms and its subatomic particles. Right. This works very, very well. The problem is this, when you start to get down to a certain level of reality, it starts to break down because as quantum physics has taught us, you know, quantum physics that was first suggested way back in 1900 by Max Planck when he did a presentation at the University of Berlin. The issue is that when you get to the extremely tiny and the very, very small, the solidity that we believe is around us just vanishes. For instance... Mater- physical material f- objects are ninety nine point nine 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 six empty space mm. the things that are made physical within that are then um the objects that make up the internal mechanisms, the electrons that are whirling round or supposedly whirling round uh the central nucleus of the atom. But these objects themselves are not basic objects. For instance, an electron is a point particle, which means it has no extension in space. Within the the nucleus of the atom, you have the proton and the neutron, both of which are in turn not basic particles because they're made up of quarks. And they are made up of a group of three quarks. There will be two up quarks and a down quark or two down quarks and up quarks. Quarks themselves are then point particles, which again, don't have any extension in space. These subatomic particles then exist within fields. And the fields are carried by, and the electromagnetic field are carried by things called bosons, which are things that carry the information. A classic boson is a photon. Now, a photon is a point of light. Now, photons are the things by which we see the reality around us. But photons are incredibly peculiar objects. They have zero mass or very little mass, and again, they have no extension in space. Also, they can only ever travel at the speed of light. Now, Einstein taught that at the speed of light, things happen. There is no time at the speed of light. So, therefore, the objects that are making you see the external reality, which we know is 99 point excess empty space, are in themselves mm. are particles that have no extension in space and are timeless. Okay. So this suddenly makes reality seem incredibly peculiar. Now, right. the materialist reductionist model cannot even begin to address this in any way. Now, Albert Einstein argued that, th- that without going into a lesson in quantum physics, but basically there was something called the Copenhagen interpretation, which was put forward by Uh, Niels Bohr and his associates in Copenhagen in the 1920s and the 1930s. And they came to the conclusion, and get this, that reality comes into existence at the act of measurement, that all these subatomic particles, and this is a known fact, before they are measured or observed, are literally waves of probability. The subatomic particle could be anywhere in the universe. The moment they are measured makes them traduce to a solid particle be it a point particle, that could be located in a specific place and location. Now, the question is, what do we consider to be an act of observation or an act of measurement? Well, there's an argument to say an act of observation is by a sentient being. So therefore, there's an argument to say that the act of observation brings about reality. Einstein didn't like this. As he once was quoted, he said, I do not believe that the moon does not exist if I do not look at it. And he argued that there is something beneath the quantum physics and the quantum particles we see, which he called the hidden variables. Now, there's a very famous quantum, well, he's not that famous, but he should be, um, who is an uh, Anglo-American called David Bohm. And David Bohm took Einstein's ideas, and he said that at a much deeper level of reality, there is order and there is sequence. But it is to do with the fact that reality itself is holographic in nature. It is created out of information. And at its base level, physical reality is not physical. It is just information. And recent research has shown that information itself has a form of s- m- solidity to itself. That it okay. So make- that's a
1: good, that's a really great segue. Building on that, Can you expand on what this this new model that goes beyond material reductionism, what does that structure look
2: like? Uh, Well, this is where it becomes fascinating because um, David Bohm, this is where the area I'm working in at the moment is, that David Bohm argued that, as you say, that the true nature of everything is information and that everything is enfolded within itself. So when we think of three-dimensional space, three-dimensional space itself is an illusion because as Einstein argued, space and time are the same thing. Space and time are not related. They are the same thing. They are space, time. So therefore, time and space, time does not exist in space and space does not exist in time. They're the same thing. They are enfolded in each other. And the same argument goes for all physical reality. It is far more complex and far more fascinating. Now, Bohm argued that things worked holographically. Now, the interesting thing about a hologram is that if you take a holographic image and you break it into parts, it's not like a jigsaw puzzle. If you had a jigsaw puzzle and you broke it into parts, each each part of the jigsaw puzzle has a, a little component part of the overall image. A holographic image doesn't. A holographic image, if you break up a holographic image, each part of the image contains the whole image. It may be denuded, but it's the whole image. Now, this is starting to then tell us something really fascinating about reality, because suddenly we have what he called the implicate and explicate orders. That there's an implicate order that everything is based upon, which then consciousness brings out by its act of observation into the visual world and the world of the senses that we experience. So there's a direct one-to-one relationship between you as your observer, the observer of the reality you see and the observe, the, the reality that's outside of you.
1: So one-to-one, that means that essentially everything that you're perceiving is a part of the observer.
2: Correct. Itself. That that, that it, it is what John Wheeler, the guy you cited before, John Archibald Wheeler called the participatory universe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people will say, oh, John Wheeler, who was John Wheeler? Well, John Wheeler was the guy, as you said, that came up with the term of black holes. And in fact, this whole model depends upon black holes this is really intriguing and this is black holes are crucial to all this Um, and it is the idea that within an enclosed system the second law of thermodynamics argues that energy can only ever change from one energy form to another and can never be lost but it has recently been proven that information is energy now if i then threw my computer into a black hole effectively, that information would be lost forever, which contradicts the second law of thermodynamics. Right, and this, right. is why, this is why people like um, uh, Stephen, Hawking, right? Stephen Hawking came up with his concept of Hawking radiation. Mm. And it's the idea that information does not get sucked into a black hole. It gets smeared along the event horizon of a black hole. Right. And it is turned into digital. There's a mirror image. One part of it falls into the black hole, and there's a mirror digital copy that is created on the on the, the edge of the Schwarzschild radius and the edge of the black hole. They then have suggested that the edge of the universe itself, imagine the universe has been expanded for, what, 13.8 billion years since the Big Bang. It's like a huge inflating balloon. And they argue, and the, the, there's more evidence for this, that on the edge the edges of this huge balloon, like we call it the balloon, there are Planck square lengths. Planck Planck length is the smallest length of, of of distance you can have of matter. And the Planck length and Planck squares, they say that each Planck square can contain one qubit of information, that is digital information. And literally we are living within a two-dimensional hologram that we perceive as a three-dimensional reality. Now, again, this is not on crazed ideas. This is, this is quantum physicists, the latest research in quantum physicists, people like Craig Hogan at the Perimeter Institute in Canada is working on it, a guy called Juan and and a very famous Israeli physicist called Jacob Bekenstein all work upon this model. And it's the idea that reality and consciousness are much more closely related. We perceive information, and from information, we create the external reality from us from our acts of observation we collapse the wave function and this is almost bringing together the copenhagen interpretation with the einsteinian stroke uh, stroke bone model
1: so linking this back to the to the the book it seems as though what we're collapsing they say is just mathematical probabilities but um the the hidden universe or the invisible universe which is the subject of the book. From which these um, these entities arrive, I think it's a good time for you to m- maybe mention the your your terms for both the sensorial experience world, but then also the world beyond our senses, where you know it's possible that non human intelligences, intelligences above or on, in a different plane than our own exist. What are those terms? Can you introduce those to us?
2: I can indeed. I use the term the kenoma and the pleroma. I use the Pleroma quite specifically because one of the the biggest influences on my thinking, not necessarily in my beliefs, but in my thinking in the way I structure, the way I understand the world, is Gnosticism. Okay, and the Gnostics were a first century schismatic Christian sect, but their beliefs actually came from an earlier time. The, you know, the ancient Greeks had very, very similar ideas. Also, Gnosticism was the thing that the Sufis in Islam were interested in, and it very much links with the concept of Maya that you have in Vedanta. And it is the idea that there is a reality behind this reality, a reality that is denied of us because you know your wonderful quotation that you used earlier one from William Blake Mm -hmm. we are locked within the cave within within our cavern within Plato's cave for want of a better term and our senses take out information the brain is an attenuator as Henri Bergson argued the French philosopher C.D. Broad argued it in 1954 um Aldous Huxley wrote a book on it, The Doors of Perception. And the idea is that our brains don't give us the full informational field because we, are, we need to be able to, in, to take the information in to allow us to survive within this simulation, within this whatever it is that we exist within. But there's a reality behind it, and that's the Pleroma. Now, the Gnostics argue the Pleroma is where the real world is. Anybody who's interested in philosophy will know the concept of Plato's forms the idea that everything in this world is um, a denuded reflection of something that is the universal, like there is a universal tree. And the right. trees that we have here are reflections of that. There are the un- shadows
1: on the cave wall. Yeah.
2: Shadows on the cave balladour. wall, quite right. Don't let, let me finish with something about that later I must tell you about. But the shadows on the wall. Plato's Cave is something, that, again, something I'm working on at the moment. And indeed, I'm planning to recreate Plato's Cave using my hypotheses and my ideas in Greece in the original location of Plato's Cave uh, spring next year, uh, which we'll work on at the moment. Interesting. But going back to the, the shadows on the wall and the, the caves, the, I think the Canoma and Paloma is best explained actually by an exposition of Plato's Cave. Uh, Have we got time for me to explain what we mean by Plato's cave? Yeah. Yeah. You think this fits in? Great. Plato was trying to get across ideas that I'm trying to get across. And what Plato said, imagine a scenario that there are a group of prisoners and they have been prisoners since their birth and they live in a cave where their heads are put in such a position that they can only ever look at the back wall of the cave and they're chained. Okay. They can only look at the back wall and behind them is a raised walkway. And the other side of the raised walkway is a fire. What happens is, is that groups of actors or individuals walk across the walkway with cardboard cutouts of animals and trees and objects in three-dimensional reality. The prisoners only ever see the reflections of those, the shadows of those objects as they look at the cave wall. But because they have no other experience other than what their senses tell them, and this is profoundly important because this is the same as we are, we only ever see what our senses tell us are there, that they believe that this is what the world is, shadows on a cave, Okay, which is exactly what William Blake was saying. However, one of the prisoners, for reasons unknown, manages to break his shackles, and he turns round. And he sees the, the walkway and sees the fire. And he walks past it and walks to the entrance of the cave. And he <laughs> sees the realities it really is. Now, like the shadow- Neo in the Matrix, yeah. Correct. Now, the shadows on the cave are what I call the Kenoma, which is the emptiness. It's Greek for emptiness. Okay? But we believe it's full. The word pleroma is Greek for full or fullness, and that is the real reality. And that's Mm. the place outside of the cave. And he sees all these wonderful things and the colours and everything else. And he walks back into the cave and he tells these other prisoners and he says, hey guys, what you think is real isn't. There's a whole world out there. Of course they will say to him, you're crazy, you're mad. And it's because they cannot in any way, they haven't got the the facilities to appreciate what he's seen and i believe this is what happens when people have glimpses of the pleroma when they take when they have dimethyltryptamine certain individuals who are non-neurotypicals you have classical mi- classic migraine people who have temporal lobe epilepsy people who experience autism people who experience alzheimers these are all people and when the doors are blown open it's schizophrenia it's right. when the doors are open, and I wrote a book a few years ago called Opening the Doors of Perception, which I put what I call my Bohmian IMAX, and I call it the Bohmian Spectrum. I've just gone through what I call the Bohmian Spectrum there, which is in deference to David Bohm. So the idea is that we are locked within our cave and we can't see all this. So there is the Pleroma, which is the the, the universe outside of this simulation. Then there's the Kenoma, Maya. Which the Indians call it, the illusionary world that we think is real and we think is reality. It's the shadows on the cave.
1: Fascinating. So, what are some techniques that people use to open the doors of perception, as you say, and see these, the pleroma, the other levels of reality?
2: This is the whole secret of esoteric traditions. This is why people train themselves into deep forms of meditation. This is why deep meditators see the world in a different way. It's mm-hmm. the idea of seeing the reality behind the reality. The terms are used many, many times in different ways. It's just focusing your attention. As Jacob Bome, who was a, a Protestant mystic in the 17th century, said, a man can go insane just looking at a pewter dish because suddenly you will see things in things and your focus will change. Now, for most of us, who are locked within the doors of perception. Our doors of perception are locked closed. Neurotypicals. We can only ever experience these other worlds using entheogens, using substances like dimethyltryptamine, ayahuasca, ketamine, LSD. These are the ones that blow the doors open. Right. But, But there are other individuals who, as I said, happen naturally. They are natural individuals that just see the the that everything is not figures dancing on a cave but Mm -hmm. we can train ourselves to do this and given certain circumstances people can do this and i believe this is what the lucid light machine does it it opens up our doors of perception in some way
1: so you mentioned a research project at the university of london led by anton bilton and they are essentially assembling a group of participants who are willingly being injected with extremely high doses of nndmt dimethyltryptamine which you mentioned earlier is produced in our our uh, pineal gland or so we we think we believe yeah. and this has been illustrated in, in labs using rats we and rats brains are extremely similar in their function to humans and obviously for moral reasons we don't just uh, slice somebody's head open and immediately sample their pineal gland you know but in rats it's it's confirmed, so it's it's extremely likely that that organ uh, between the two hemispheres of the brain the the pineal gland or the third eye is creating DMT, which is just incredible. so if you're willing to share i'm I'm curious, have you ever experienced these these uh entities for yourself that they they are uh, participants are regularly being injected with dimethyltryptamine and being essentially catapulted out of their five-sense experience of their body into this higher dimension. And then they're reporting back consistently, anecdotally, but uh, extremely uniformly, these entities. Have you ever experienced what they are experiencing directly?
2: No, I haven't. I'm always um, a descriptor of other people's experiences. Um, One day maybe I will, under controlled circumstances, test this out for myself um legally i may add in terms of because it'd be part of a research project but right. i'm quite interested to try this i at the moment it's p other people describing these things um and what they tell me is extraordinary and these again are postdoctoral researchers these are not just your guy down the, the local bar these are people who have spent their life working in virtual reality environments, working with hallucinogenic substances and everything else as well. And they regularly tell me that when they go into these altered states of consciousness, the entities are waiting for them. The entities will tell them that maybe this is not the right way of doing it. They go into these altered states and the same entities greet them in the same sets of circumstances, which suggests to me that whatever the world they go into, it has a consistency but not only that, people who take and experience dimethyltryptamine tell me that the reality they go into is even more real than this reality. When you come back to mm. this reality, you realize, you realize when you go to the canoma, you realize this true state of the pleroma. And suddenly your worldview and the the, the the sudden solidity of the world around you that you think is there suddenly isn't. And I know of nobody that has had a DMT experience that doesn't report that back. And say, my life has changed completely. I see the world in a different way. Now, the question here is, can we, can the pineal gland stimulate this in ordinary people? And I'd argue, yes, it does. As you mentioned there, there's been work done by a lady called Jimo Borgigian at the University of Michigan, who in 2017, they discovered dimethyltryptamine in the pineal gland of live rats. It's the first time that dimethyltryptamine has been found in the brain of a mammal. Now, this Mm -hmm. is extraordinary because this then explains the existence of something called the trace amine-associated receptors in the brain. These are receptor sites within the neurons that seem to be designed to work exclusively with dimethyltryptamine, which means that dimethyltryptamine is a neurotransmitter. If dimethyltryptamine is a neurotransmitter, it effectively means that it has been evolved that the human body and other bodies have evolved dimethyltryptamine. Now, dimethyltryptamine is in the human body. It's in the liver, right, it's in right. the stomach, it's in, the, it's in mm-hmm. the spinal fluid, it's in most plants, it's everywhere. Now, why is this substance evolved? And indeed, the bigger question is, how can a group of molecules, which as I said earlier on, a 99.xx empty space in a particular configuration, can, when placed in the brain, create alternate realities? This is the point of my work, is that people just say, oh, they cause hallucinations. My argument is, hold on a minute, guys. What are hallucinations? How do you define hallucinations? In fact, you haven't even at first base of understanding the concept of consciousness and how the brain creates consciousness before you Mm -hmm. start explaining how the perceiver perceives these hallucinations, because you've got no idea what hallucinations are anyway. I call it hubris. You know, it's yeah. this we understand. They don't understand. They have labels, and they think because they have a label, particularly if they make it Latin or Greek, it sounds really cool. You know, it's it's like you know idioma- uh, idiomatic. Something's idiomatic, so somebody will say you've got idiomatic epilepsy. So somebody says, "Oh, the doctor knows what I've got. I've got idiomatic <laughs> epilepsy." When you look up the word idiomatic, it means we have a clue what it is, right? Yeah, you know, this is the game they play. You know.
1: Yeah. So there was a study at the University of Sussex that they're actually taking people's brains into MRIs and measuring the blood flow and such while they're on uh, psychedelic mushrooms or psilocybin, which is chemically extremely similar to dimethyltryptamine. Am I right? Yes, you are. So do we yet understand exactly what's going on in the brain? And you do mention this in the book. I'm, I'm just excited to share this with our listeners. Yeah. This, this what is- yeah.
2: This is extraordinary. Um, The research, I mean, I live in Sussex and I know some of the people that have been involved in this. And funnily enough, and again, you may be interested to know this, that the the same research team have been working with the lucid light device and the hypnagogic light device down at the University of Sussex. So at the moment there is pending a paper on the on the hypnagogic light device as well so it's quite exciting news that but it's a place called the sackler center um at the university of sussex it's uh, the uh, the department for the study of consciousness and there's a guy called Anil seth and another guy called An- adam barrett and what they did was they gave um a group of individuals either um ketamine uh psilocybin or lsd and what they did was they tested what happened in the brain when these substances were active and what they discovered was extraordinary, because ordinarily, the argument is that sleep is some form of um denuded version of consciousness, that you're 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 less conscious when you're asleep than when than when you're actually actively awake. But they found this wasn't the case. That when these people went into these altered states of consciousness, the brain worked in a completely different way. It suddenly started work the signal diversity. Change. There were more diverse signals taking place. But also the brain was less integrated. Areas of the brain that normally communicate ceased communicating in some way. As if what was happening was that the substance was actually stopping the brain effectively being an attenuator. It was stopping the brain's abilities to cut out, to, to cut out the broader reality. To be Be a a limiter limiter on our
1: experience, yeah.
2: Yeah, it was bringing in the larger experience. It was bringing in the wider, greater reality that Aldous Huxley intimated. And it seems that what is happening is, by the brain shutting down its abilities, it is able to open up to a broader universe. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So you said that in
1: instances where people are experiencing this broader reality, often Incredible things happen, like someone, say, has a dream, and they discover that they actually were sharing their dream. And you share a, a really interesting story in the book about Sam Treasures talking white cat. Uh, can you share that with us?
2: I certainly can. I mean, Sam is somebody that's going to be working with me on a lot of the projects going forward as well. Mm. Um Sam Sam's a young Canadian and she was telling me one day about her her out of body experience she has very very powerful out of body experiences um she's a postgraduate anthropologist and everything else so she's a bright cookie but she's had some extraordinary experiences in her past and when she was a teenager she she had an experience that really she found quite extraordinary and she says that there was there was an outsider at the school she was at in in ontario and One night she had an out-of-the-body experience where she finds herself out of her body and she finds herself downstairs in her house. And she said she was there in three dimensions, but she knew she was dreaming. And as she's there, a white cat entered the house and walked up to her. And she went over to the cat and the cat spoke to her, which she found quite strange. And then she comes to her. And then she's at school the next day. And this outsider guy comes over to her and says, "Uh, hi, Sam. And he'd never really spoken to her before, I don't think, but they then became subsequent friends. And he turned around and he said, um, he said, do you have a dream last night about a white cat that spoke to you? And she turned around to him and she said, how do you know about that? And he turned around and he said, because I was the white cat. (laughs) Now, this suggests to her, and we have discussed this quite considerably, that some people can get into your dreams when you're in a dream state, when you're in a hypnagogic state, which is that kind of liminal state between wake and asleep, sleep, or when you're in an out-of-body experience or when you're lucid dreaming, you can encounter other people who are lucid dreaming. Now, again, I work with a lot of people that work in lucid dreaming. I mean, one of, my, one of my associates, a guy called Charlie Shaw, and Charlie does experiments with lucid dreaming where he can lucid dream and he will see other people in the dream, in the lucid dream state, and they will carry back information into this state where they both witness the same thing from different viewpoints. Now, this is profoundly important because the reason we believe that the reality we are seeing now is real is because it's consensual. That is because I could turn around and say to you, Nick, look, there's a blue car over there. And you say, yeah, it's a blue car. So it's consensual. So we have shared it. So therefore, it's externally real and provable. But what happens if somebody goes into a dream sequence and shares the same information and brings it back? That suggests that that reality by the criteria we use now about what reality is, is just as real.
1: Yeah, and there's, an, there's a, a very clear sort of causal uh, picture showing up. It seems like DMT is the key to all of this, because if it's released in the pineal gland, it's likely what is creating our visions in when we're having dreams, mm. right? So... If people are sharing their dreams there's a similar phenomenon going on when people have taken ayahuasca or a smoked dmt injected it however they do it in their private or a lab setting that they're experiencing these exact same entities that you talk about in the book for example things that have showed up throughout all of history like the greys with their very specific shaped skulls and their their dark almond eyes um i'm wondering can you tell us what some of these different kinds of beings are, how they came to be identified, and what they're called?
2: Right. Okay. I'm I'm really fascinated by this because my writing style is always to start in one direction, and then literally my daemon, my, what I consider my higher self, then draws me off on a completely different direction. And this is what happened with this book, because... I started to get into some very, very interesting areas in terms of, because people who read my books will know that nothing is off ground for me. Nothing is, 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 mm-hmm. is not, I will bring everything in, you know, because as far as I'm concerned, we've got to stop this silo world whereby you just discuss your own subject. I think information right, right. doesn't keep itself in silos, does it? You know, it, it, the, the world is a much more interesting place than this. Yeah. As and a I philosophy believe- major, I can appreciate that. It's being true. A generalist, it? Yeah, yeah. To, uh, you know, being a generalist really helps because you can bring information. I use the analogy of a painting. You know, if it's all one color, you're not going to see anything. But as you start bringing in different colors, you start to f- see the picture in much greater like detail. Picture, yes, absolutely. And this is what we need to do. And this is why academia has become too rigid. It's because people are experts on the the, the knee movements of the less, lesser spotty grasshopper, you know, which is of all well use. But that person knows nothing else about anything else but are considered an expert because they can call themselves doctor. You know, but right. And
1: there's you know, not much money, at least in terms of grants and connecting dots that are going to upend you know, all these different and you have corporations the and, and um, industries and fields.
2: Yeah. But so going back, so again, you know, with my interest in Gnosticism, but also when I was at university, I mean, I studied the sociology of religion and the sociology of language and various other areas. So I'm always quite interested in belief systems and how they mold the way people think. And I am developing a model that says that I'm calling it the egregorial model of reality, whereby we collectively create external reality, from our own anticipations, our hopes, our fears, our dreams, just like we create dreams. And dimethyltryptamine, endogenous dimethyltryptamine, as Rick Strassman said, there is evidence that endogenous dimethyltryptamine is our reality modulator. And it's it's what dimethyltryptamine that creates the external world we think is external to us. But it's a far more interesting thing than, than that. So when people experience these entities... I think they are both part of us and not part of us. We create them, but they are independent of us. There's a kind of a feedback mechanism going on here. This is why I call it the egregorial. Egregors, the word egregor is Greek for watcher. Now, if you go into the history of the Bible and you go into the history of of, of Islamic teaching, you will find this concept of the watchers, the Nephilim. These are entities that seem to come from somewhere else. In the Bible, they talk, they landed on Mount Hermon and they then, uh, they had sex with with, with human women and they taught humanity certain skills. And then they, they seem to disappear again and they seem to go, or they seem to to you know it's strange but these creatures always seem to the certain factors i discovered in the book that i find intriguing about them they all see always seem to be related to darkness it always seems to be that they they are found in caves or round caves for instance the jinn which are the the, the 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 malevolent beings in in um in islamic teaching particularly in sufism now the jinn the, the jinn in the quran it says that the jinn were made and this is a crucially important for the way where my model is going at the moment. They said the gin were created out of smokeless fire. We were made out of earth and water, and the gin were made out of smokeless fire. Smokeless fire is, to me, another description for a substance known as plasma. Plasma is another form of matter. It it is to do with ionized atoms, okay? And it, it it flows in a different way. But can you imagine entities that were made from plasma would be very different to what normal physical entities would be. They could move round things. They could reappear. They would appear as light beings under certain circumstances. Now, I believe this is what these entities are. And I believe they can use our thoughts to bring themselves in from the Pleroma or from areas between the Pleroma and the Canoma the areas that people argue when they they are shamans, the the, the upper world and the lower world. If you look into esoteric Sufism, if you look into the Kabbalah, you look into Christian esotericism, you look into mysticism, they all argue about these, these areas that are above us or around us that we can't perceive under normal circumstances, but entities can come through. Now, these entities seem to use our hopes and our fears to bring themselves into existence. This is why I would argue that fear is involved here. Why ghosts seem to engender fear in people because it's the fear they need in order to manifest people when they have uh, circumstances where, I don't know, where they have sleep paralysis and they, they, they sense the cowled figure during sleep paralysis. These again are the entities drawing themselves into us. But they are part of us, and I think the alien greys are exactly the same. They are all part of the same phenomenon. Now, again, one of the – and again, it was Sam Treasure that pointed out to me this – the American TV series at the moment, Hellier. Hellier hits on so many of the areas that I'm writing about. It is uncanny. It's synchronicity writ large. Okay, hmm. and it's again the idea they come in the in the in this TV series they come to similar conclusions to myself about the true nature of poltergeist activity, of ghost activity. There's almost this kind of humour involved. Synchronicity is involved in it. Jokiness is involved. And of course, if you read the writings of people like Terence McKenna, the people that write about dimethyltryptamine dem- 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 and ayahuasca, what do we have? We have the cosmic jokers. We have the machine element. Right. Right. We have these so. creatures that. And the elves, I think elves, elves are just a different version and a different interpretation of the greys. You know, mm. the greys are like, they're elvish in the way they, they, they react. And also they can manifest particularly, for instance, with my own mother. My own mother saw a grey in her bedroom and she described it to me in detail. Now, my mother was developing something called Charles Bonnet syndrome. Now, Charles Bonnet syndrome is again, when the doors of perception start to open and individuals who have Charles Bonnet syndrome start to see and get this. They see little creatures. They see children. They see small creatures everywhere. And it's because the DMT in their brain. And the reason this is happening is because, and again, I do the neurochemistry of this. And again, if anybody's out there who thinks I'm wrong, fine, I'll, you know, correct me on this. But I argue that what is taking place during because my mother was developing alzheimer's and there 's a direct relationship between alzheimer 's disease and charles bonnet syndrome it 's a precursor for it that 's how I got the diagnosis what happens is with 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 um, alzheimer 's is that there are things in the brain called amyloid plaques, and what they do is they literally destroy they blow up the neurons they destroy the neurons but they particularly destroy S- s- certain things within the neurons um, which are the structures that hold together the neurons themselves okay mm. now these things these structures within the brain the structures within the neurons a guy called Stuart Hammerhoff and Roger Penrose they work together with something called a model called orchestrated objective reduction and they argue that these little structures called microtubules are the things that allow us to actually tune into the reality field. These are the things using quantum physics and using zero point energy. These are the things that vibrate at certain ways and actually create the, the interference patterns that create the holographic nature of what external reality is. And I think, I think I'm right in saying I'm the only person on the planet that have made these links. I may be wrong, but I don't know of anybody else that's made these links. And these—it seems extremely
1: cutting edge. And I I poke around in these fields, if you can't tell. And I haven't seen anything that is quite advancing such a a complete picture yet. No.
2: Well, thank you. That's good because what I think is is that when these uh, amyloid plaques destroy the microtubules, they stop. Like the psilocybin, like the research done at the Sackler Center. With with um, hallucinogenic substances, I think this mm-hmm. is what happens when individuals have Alzheimer's. Because what happens is. Their, their brain areas are switched off in exactly the same way. And I will guarantee, and I'd love to do the research on this, I will guarantee that if you did a, a an analysis of which parts of the brain are shut off during these experiments at the University of Sussex, and you look at the parts of the brain that are shut off when somebody's decreasing their brain capacity because of Alzheimer's, you'll find they mirror each other. Wow. I will guarantee it. Well,
1: that is definitely falsifiable. That is a
2: real scientific experiment that can be made. It is. And it's the first time I've thought about this, to be honest, you know, so that's <laughs> really excellent, Nick. I'm I've honored, yeah. it before. But this is the way of doing it. And I think Alzheimer's, I think autism is the same. There is something in autism called the, the, uh, the extended world syndrome. A guy called Markolo, I think, came up with this. And why do autistic children react the way they do? They react the way they do because their world is full of noise and sound because they're mm-hmm. accessing the pleroma. They're accessing the the true nature of reality, and they can't handle it. Wow, you know, and this is why they act the way they do. This is why people who ha- experience temporal lobe epilepsy, people who experience schizophrenia, again, nobody I think is making these links between hallucinogenic substances and and schizophrenia, or no. Alzheimer's, or even classic migraine. You know, classic migraine because it,
1: because it's or- cutting off the the parts of the brain that are an inhibiting factor.
2: Correct. Correct. And I think, I think the hypothesis works. Um, and I, I, I am, I have to say amazingly disappointed and it sounds vain, but it's not meant to be. There's the little, little me going, for God's sake, listen to me guys. And I see all these academic papers being written and I see all these people and I see people like, I don't know. Um, a classic example is somebody like, uh, uh, Lanza. lanza who yeah. wrote the book um by the bio- biocentrism you know there is uh, bi- uh, lanza has a tenth of the material in his book biocentrism than i have in my first book is the life after death we go down the same paths but i take it to so many different areas and i link so many bits of the picture and lanza's book is huge lanza they were going to give lanza people were suggesting that lanza should have got the nobel prize and i'm sitting mm. there going hold on a minute My book came out four years before his.
1: Yeah, you say
2: exactly the same things, and nobody's interested. You know, well, honestly, I
1: think the more commercially interesting things get, the more sort of uh, up in their ivory towers a lot of the academics get. This you you should take this as a compliment. It it reminds me. It seems almost as epic as Albert Einstein before he hired that. uh, Was it a German to fly? or to use the telescope to photograph the solar eclipse. It's oh, like, yes, to show, you, but you, like so but you, you should really hand. follow through and do those, those um,
2: scientific experiments. Well, we are more working on this. The, as time has gone on, there's more and more academics coming to me and there's more and more academics actually reading my work now going, whoa, woof. This is quite exciting. exciting. Quite exciting. exciting. And we do need to, to work on experimentation at the moment. I'm in negotiations for my doctorate, uh, with one of the UK universities. And um, one of the things we're planning to do is a series of experiments and write them up in academic papers so I can get a PhD by publication, um, which, which could be quite interesting, I think, and hopeful.
1: Groundbreaking, groundbreaking stuff. So you discussed the idea that consciousness cannot be explained using normal particle physics. We've been over this a bit. And recent discoveries suggest that there is even a more fundamental microscopic almost sub-quantum field known as the zero-point energy Ooh. field Yeah, that is emanating our consciousness as essentially, you write in the book, a source of light. Uh, in effect, there's no such thing as empty space because at that micro level uh, supplying our consciousness, the zero-point energy field is constantly just exploding with energy and information. And this relates back to ancient, ancient ideas such as Uh, the idea of the pleroma in Gnosticism or qi in ancient Chinese Mm -hmm. philosophy or the Akashic records from uh, ancient Indian philosophy, you theorize that it may be the pineal gland, and this is kind of putting a button on everything we've talked about, is the source of DMT. And DMT is the key to the participatory, participatory universe in the sense that it's shutting off that inhibiting filter in the brain and allowing us to perceive Reality allowing us to see beyond the, the shadows on the cave wall,
2: so to speak. Totally, I mean, one of the things that has long intrigued me. I mean, in fact, you mentioned the Akashic records. Um, uh, I wrote a book with Irvin Laszlo a few years ago, uh, and Irvin Laszlo is the person that cited the idea of the Akashic field. Mm-hmm. And zero point energy is quite intriguing in that it is energy where there should be no energy, and effectively, what it is is if you take. Um, any substance, but usually they use helium four and you take it down to just above absolute zero, which is 273.17 degree minus 273.17 degrees Kelvin. Kelvin or is it zero Kelvin? No, I think it's zero Kelvin and it's minus 273.17 centigrade. It's, It's so, that is the point where there is no movement within subatomic particles, which means there's no heat. Which means right. it's the zero point, which means that there is there is no energy at all. Now, what they found is they take, they can you cannot get to zero the zero point. You can you can't get to absolute zero, but you can get within a billionth of a, a degree of it. And when they take helium four down to that level, there's still energy coming up from the field. There's still energy coming up from somewhere. Mm-hmm. Now, the question here, and it, it gets quite tender, but it's really quite fascinating about the zero point field and why why it's so strange and why this energy is so strange, is that There is something strange. There is something called Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. And that is that in any subatomic particle, you can only ever know its its velocity or its location, but you can never know both. Right, right. Now, the thing is that if you then take a subatomic particle down to zero point, if you take it down to absolute zero, it's not moving anymore. And if it's not Mm. moving, you know where it is. And if it's not moving, you know it's not moving and you know where it is, you know its velocity is zero, which contravenes one of the basic laws of quantum physics, which means you there has to be energy there because it has to have energy coming from somewhere. Now, the idea is that this energy just emanates from the quantum vacuum. And the quantum vacuum is a plenum. It's not a vacuum. It's a plenum. It's the opposite. It's full of energy. Now, they know from research there are things called uh, virtual particles that literally come into existence from nowhere for a billionth of a second and disappear again. Mm -hmm. Where do they come from and where are they going from? More importantly, the uh, the mystery of um, dark energy and dark matter. We know that 94% of the universe is missing. We know this from the way in which galaxies um, revolve, how how they revolve around. They they don't revolve in the right way. When you
1: say 97% of the universe is missing, are you talking about 94? 94. Are you saying that it's dark matter? Is that what you're referring to? Uh,
2: No. uh, Referring to what? Dark matter or dark, oh, dark energy, matter, dark, yes. gravity, dark, dark gravity, dark gravity and dark energy. Yeah. Dark matter and dark energy. Exactly. And you know, they, you know, again, this labeling, they use it they use the term dark matter and dark energy, not because it's dark. They don't know what right, it right. is. They don't know where yeah. it is, but yeah. they, they pretend that they kind of know because they've named it. You know, I call it the labeling theory of science.
1: Right. Like um, the Big Bang Theory. It, 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 there was no air to carry sounds. So yeah, was no sound. it, wasn't,
2: it wasn't big and it wasn't bang. <laughs> you know. And then they yeah. have this wonderful th- th- theory as to why it, well, how the universe has expanded the way it was by saying that for the first I don't know, few years, there was this super duper hyperinflation of the universe where the universe was expanding thousands of times faster than the speed of light. But the only way they do that is that model is in order to explain what they can observe. This is like Rudyard Kipling called just so stories, like how the elephant got its its, um, trunk. It's the same kind of argument. Science is doing just so stories. They see the evidence mm. and they think and they come up with a model to explain it. And suddenly that model becomes the accepted. It's like epicycles. You know, in medieval times, they couldn't explain re- uh, retrograde motion in the outer planets. And if we had a where the earth was the center of the universe, the planet shouldn't be doing that. So they come up with epicycles and then they come up with epicycles on epicycles. And this is yeah. what science is doing now. They need to go back to the basics to say consciousness is prime. Let's take it from that basics. And let's start looking at it in a completely different way. We need a new paradigm of science because we can't explain everything. The, one of my favorite quotes in, I think it was 1894, um, Mitchelson of the Mitchelson-Morley experiment was opening up a new section of the astronomy section at the University of Chicago. And he stood up and he made a speech and he turned around and he said, there's no point in anybody going into physics at the moment because there's nothing left to be explored. There are just two or three issues that we have. Black body radiation is one of them and the photoelectric effect is another. But basically all we're going to be doing is calculating to the sixth decimal point. There was one young scientist in Germany at the time who was told if you want to, he had a choice of becoming a quantum f- a physicist or a musician. He decided he would become a physicist, even though his tutor told him there's no future in physics, we've already explained everything. That young man was a guy called Max Planck, who in 1900, in December 1900, stood up and the only way he could explain one of those problems, which was the problem of black body radiation, was to suggest that energy came in quanta, little packages, rather than being continual. The rest, as they say, was history in 1900, and then 1905, Einstein came along and explained the photoelectric effect, and by doing so brought about wave-particle duality, the idea that light is both a particle and a wave, depending on whether it's observed or not, and this is why reality out there is stranger than we can ever imagine.
0: Yeah,
1: it's a very exciting time. It almost harkens back to even the Copernican revolution when you have this arrogant establishment. It, you know, history really kind of just repeats itself, doesn't it? That mm. it, it gets this groupthink going and then, you know, that is the accepted model and anything else is heresy. And we don't use the word heresy today, but that's akin to how they react to a lot of these ideas that threaten the established models.
2: Well, well totally, you- wasn't it? You know, the, the Inquisition dragged Galileo uh, to a trial you know, and he said under his breath, it still moves when they were when yeah. told it wasn't, and they were saying it wasn't. And of course, the definitive book on this is Thomas Kuhn, who I think it was 1970, it might have been slightly earlier, wrote a book called The Theory of Scientific Revolutions. And he argued I actually you know, had
1: to read some passages from that in school, yeah.
2: It's a good book isn't it? It's excellent and it's always been something that profoundly affected me because we know that one science and one paradigm grows out of the other but it goes it develops because of the the black swans or the white crows that are in the science now the things we cannot explain and as science mm. has developed and I think it was Fred Hoyle that said this the astronomer when he said you just need mm. one thing to be proven that contradicts the modern scientific model and the whole edifice collapses. And I think that thing that's going to be proven is probably going to be precognition. Either precognition um, and people being able to predict the future or possibly the idea of of entities coming in from somewhere else.
1: Mm. So precognition, what the CIA has already been working on, right, for years in in terms terms of... uh, scientific remote viewing, things of that nature, so you you could absolutely be right um, final question: does the simulation theory of reality, something you also talk about, become more or less likely, considering what we now know about this hidden universe, about you know the key of dmT opening up the brain to see uh, more of what 's going on, uh, the idea of the zero point energy field? Uh, backing up, giving this real scientific gravitas. Does it? What does it look like for the simulation theory going forward?
2: Yeah, I think the first thing that the simulation theory has to do is to find a new term because the word simulation implies that it's based upon something else because, of course, that's what a simulation is. It's, mm-hmm. it's a simulacra. It's something that it looks like something else or is made to look like something else as Brad said, and Philip K. Dick, somebody I've written about, used to write about. So we need to come up with something different. It's more, uh, and a program. A a
1: projection or or something, a hologram.
2: Yeah. It's something like that. And it's the idea that the reality we perceive is not what it seems. And it seems to be based upon, and I think the point that we're going to discover is the more we know about information, and the more we know about the nature of information, you know, way back in the 1950s and the 1960s, there was a guy called Claude Shannon. And it was Claude Shannon that first came up with the idea that information has a form of physicality to itself, that it has some kind of reality that we don't understand and that everything at its basis is information and information processing. Now, there are a lot of researchers now, you know, there is the old idea that the old paradigm doesn't end by people changing their ideas. It ends when the old scientists start to die away and the new scientists start to come up. And this is what's been happening in the last 15 or so years. There's a lot of young scientists coming up. And I I cite one particular example, a guy called Vlatko Vadrel, who is uh, a British uh, Serbian Quantum physicist who was, I think, and may still be professor of quantum physics at the University of Singapore. And he wrote a book two or three, a few years ago now, putting forward the whole idea of why it is that the evidence is overpowering that the true nature of matter and reality is digital. And that everything is digital information. Now, if digital everything, meaning bi- binary, binary, yeah, it's it's actually qu- it's quibits. It's actually quantum binary information. Okay. Mm. Now we know from the work that's been done. Even Google are working on this now on quantum computing. Now, con- quantum computing is quite fascinating because it implies that Hugh Everett the PhD thesis in 1957, where he postulated the many worlds hypothesis has validity and that this is one of a number, probably billions of simulations, all of which overlap on each other. And all these simulations are subtly different from each other. The ones nearest us are are closer to us. And the further away you get, the, the, the more different they become. But get this, if that is the case, it means that there is a Nick and an Anthony or a Nick and a Tony having exactly the same conversation in millions of universes at the moment, but each one is subtly different. Okay. Now, quantum computing works by realizing that there are alternate universes and actually doing the calculations in these universes. Okay. Okay. And it is all to do this, things like, for instance, you know, your brain really goes to mush when you start to realize things like non-locality, superposition of subatomic particles, that subatomic particles, once they, they are engaged in the same quantum state, if you then place them at the other side of the universe, you do one thing to one subatomic particle, the other one reacts instantaneously, which suggests, as David Bohm said, at a deeper level of reality, what we think is two particles, in fact, one and that, in fact, everything is just unitary. It's just a unitary thing. Even consciousness, we are all one consciousness experiencing itself subjectively.
1: I was just going to say it evokes that oceanic feeling of oneness when you consider that broad, broad view.
2: Oh, totally. You know, the idea that we get sometimes during, I know that my friends and associates that have had particularly not DMT, but 5-MeO-DMT. DMT is considered to be what's called the the spirit molecule by Rick Strassman. Mm -hmm. 5-MeO-DMT is called the God particle. Because when you take 5-MeO-DMT, you suddenly learn the greatest truth. And I know associates who have taken this, they're still coming down. You take 5-MeO-DMT, you are never the same. (laughs) And they turn around and they say, you realize that everything is one. And wow. that's the most uncanny sensation. And everybody I know that's taken five MEO come back and says that, wow, wow, I'm just part of everything. Now, again, a friend of mine had a near-death experience drowning in the sea off um, off the south coast of England in 1999. And part of his um, death um, past life review, uh, he was back being a child running across the road and he was back in his old body for 35, 40 years before. He's running across the road. He gets hit by a car. He feels the pain of his leg being hit. And then mm. suddenly he's out of the body And and get this, He's looking down at a woman's leg and the woman has a, a ladder in her stocking and she's fiddling around with the ladder of her stocking. He then looks up and she's got her hand on a steering wheel. He realizes she's driving a car as she looks up to see a little boy run across the road and get hit by her. He then felt all her pain coming out, looking at um, his body, lying there, his broken leg and all her fear. People say this when you have near-death experiences, when you have that Touching the reality behind reality, the, as you know, it was Morris Buck in 1900 who wrote a book called Cosmic Consciousness. And in this book, he mm-hmm. said about this oceanic feeling, this feeling at onement with everything, and that's where the word atonement comes from. It's at onement, at onement, yeah, and it's feeling you're part of the greater something. You find the God within you. You know, what does ancient laws, what do magicians try to do all the time to find the God within? Even the Bible says, look for Jesus within you. It's because we, as as Bill Hicks said, we are all one consciousness experiencing itself subjectively. We are shards of the pleroma. We are in, in esoteric belief systems, particularly in the Kabbalah. There is this tale about the smashing of the vessels. And in the smashing of the vessels, they argue that there were these vessels that were created and they were a singular entity and they were smashed. And this is how individuation took place, that it was the smashing of the vessels. And the major teachings of all esoteric esoteric traditions, there are two things, that we are a single consciousness experiencing itself subjectively, but also, and there's the God within, and you find the God within, and also that we all have two personalities, which I discuss in my book, The Daemon God, which we haven't even touched upon, which I call the daemon, which is the part of you that exists in the Pleroma that has mm-hmm. lived your life before many times within the simulation, for want of a better term, and your edolon, and your Edelon, which is the being that exists within the simulation and only lives one life and doesn't Mm -hmm. remember their past lives
1: Mm. very very fascinating well i don't know how we could end on a more empowering note than realizing that everything is one and we are essentially at a certain level not that we are god but uh, god is all of us and we are it exactly all right well thank you anthony wow what an amazing conversation i think that may be my favorite podcast i've ever done uh is there anywhere that People can follow you, sites so they can subscribe to you. I highly recommend that they check out The Hidden Universe.
2: Yeah, no, sort of, um, if you're interested in my work, um, my books, you can order my books from any bookshop you want. Some of the bookshops will have them in there. Uh, that's both in the USA and in the UK and in Canada. Um, also, my books are in, um, at least one of my books is in every major European language and some minor European languages. I've got two books going into Greek, um, in a few weeks time. Um, all my books are on Kindle, uh, and on Kobo and various other digital outlets. Three of my books, and there will be a fourth coming out soon are all on, are on Audible. Um, so you can listen if you're interested in this. Uh, again, you just go onto Audible and order it there. If you want personal signed copies of my books, you can go onto my website, which is anthonypeak.com. That's Anthony with an e, Anthony with an H and Peak with an E on the end. Also, I'm extremely active on Facebook um, and I'm more and more doing Facebook live broadcasts. We've started doing these more regularly and we're going to be doing them once every week or once every fortnight. And myself and Sam Treasure are planning to do um, joint broadcasts on this as well in the future. In terms of um, Instagram, I'm becoming more and more active on Instagram. You can find me on Instagram on uh, Ferryman54. Um, so check that out as well. Um join me. There's uh, All my books have all have their own Facebook sites as well, where you can debate and discuss, but join me on there. I've got around about 11,000 people involved in Facebook at the moment. I'm up to my limit on 5,000 friends, but you can follow me. It's unlimited on um, Instagram. So by all means, join me on there and join in. There's more and more of us. We're growing day by day. There are more and more people getting involved in this. I don't need to get reviews in the major papers of the world i don't need the bbc or nbc to be reporting me it's getting round by word of mouth mm-hmm. and it is getting round by word of mouth and it's by doing interviews like this and this is why i thank you nick for having you on the sh- having me on the show because it's only through people like you that i'm getting my ideas out there so thank you very much for this it really i really appreciate it
1: my pleasure and likewise that was an excellent excellent conversation anthony thank you so much thank you nick Remember you can follow me on Twitter, Patreon, Parler, YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram at NickAris, and on NickAris.com. My new book, Depolarized, Transcending the False Left-Right Narrative, could not be coming out at a more opportune moment on July 30th, 2020. I'm extremely excited to share with you some excerpts of the audiobook in progress, As many episodes during this period of time Leading up to the launch July 30th this year It will be available on Kindle and Amazon As well as Audible and iTunes For the audiobook shortly thereafter This episode will also be available On our partner podcast Pull Up a Pew Hosted by Drew Who also hosts our Missing Persons podcast Slash tool it's the companion to the Owl Once Was Lost Missing Persons phone app tool, which every single person listening who has children or even just elderly adults or friends or family who are mentally challenged. Definitely give the Owl podcast a listen probably download the app. They are changing the game when it comes to missing persons. Be sure to check out Anthony Peake's work. I know I'm going to YouTube to check out the hypnagogic light experience video for myself. I look forward to the next episode, which I think will be an excerpt from the upcoming book, Depolarized. I hope you stop by, and thank you for listening. Keep at it. There's a lot more where this came from.
3: All right, that concludes another episode of Pull Up a Pew podcast. I want to thank Nick Harris and our sister podcast, Tome Time, for doing this absolutely incredible interview of one of my most favorite people on the planet, Anthony Peake. Please remember to hit the five stars if you enjoyed that interview for Tome Time. Also for Pull Up a Pew podcast, it's vitally important so that we are able to be found on the algorithms that Apple uses, especially you can also find starred or other reviews on your Android products so please leave that five stars for us we need to accumulate those we want this to spread uh, especially with our other sister podcast that i host once was lost podcast which is the companion to the owl once was lost missing persons phone app for android and apple devices so that's going to conclude it for today Uh, This was the remake. I apologize for the first edition and the echoing. Hopefully this solved the problem. You guys have a great time. Drew out.